Thank you for downloading the Wings Museum podcast. In this edition, we talk about the collection of wartime radio sets and the challenge of bringing some of them back to fully working order and then keeping them there. My name's Barry Bloomfield and I came here nine years ago now and I had the task of cleaning a couple of radios to start off with and that's all that was in the museum at the time. Since then, we've had probably up to 20 donated all Second World War radios and we took it upon ourselves to get them working so that people can come and see how they used to work. There are lots and lots of different boxes of different shapes and forms, different knobs on the side, dials, all sorts. We have here mainly, well, all Second World War radios that have been found in lofts in various places. We also have a civilian radio that was uh, donated that was the only one allowed to be manufactured for civilians in the war. Uh, that one works. We've got um, the famous 1154-55, which is used in the Lancaster bombers. We have the receiver working on that. It's not just one little neat box that no. came out of uh, a Lancaster. It's, it's lots of little neat boxes. It's two neat boxes, but you've also got a lot of ancillaries. The whole thing, which bear in mind it's just an HF set, it, it probably weighs about 120 kilos when you add in all the uh, ancillaries because it had two big power packs with it as well. So the bombers were taking off carrying 120 kilos of radios, which is the same thing nowadays, looking at the amateur set over there, would weigh about three kilos. But it, it was good in its day and it did its job. So uh, that's one of the sets. The other sets we've got, we've got a couple of sets that were used by the uh, voluntary interceptors. These were people that were recruited by MI5 and MI6 at the beginning of the war for listening. And all the information they received, mainly listening to... Um, broadcasts from the ABWA, the German Secret Service, etc., uh, all in code, Enigma and various other codes. And that information was given to Bletchley Park indirectly and helped to contribute towards the breaking of the codes. Uh, one of the sets, in fact, the AR-88 at the bottom there, was used in the film, the Alan Turing film, the um, imitation game. It was lent to the film company by its previous owner, and he gave it to us after that. A mouse had been living in that one, so that took a while to get going. And getting things going is one of the things that uh, you do enjoy doing, don't you? Uh, well, it's a, we're both amateur radio people. I, I'm hearing yeah. giggling in the background. <laughs> we, uh, we do our best to get them going. Um, I wouldn't say we're 100% experts, but we do get them going so that people can see them going and they're safe. And uh, it does keep us warm in the winter because they're all valve sets. So... We started off in a little hut over the way there, which could get about three people in. And then this one, the uh, museum decided to uh, make a bigger display of it because we had so much stuff. And uh, Bernie and I put this up together, what, six, seven years ago now. And um, It's certainly nice and cosy on a day like this. It's well insulated for that reason. <laughs> <laughs> Whilst you may freeze in the museum in this particular place, you, you'll be relatively warm. Other than, other than that, we've got... Uh, the 19 set that was used in uh, tanks and the Western Desert and the Russians had a lot of those as well. We've got that one working and uh, there are various other air traffic sets and PCR sets and things and a couple of portable ones and one set that was used by the um, various people but including the um, Met Office at Dunstable. Uh, we have a picture here of several ladies working on these sets. Met flights would fly out over the Atlantic and the uh, and the North Sea getting all the information and signalling back to these uh, ladies at Dunstable. And from that, they made the uh, Met charts. 
which helped for the D-Day 6th of June, if nothing else. So all of these fairly large boxes, I mean, I, I, we're talking, what, 18 inches by, what, a foot high, by, by <laughs> perhaps another 18 inches deep, most of them? Oh, yes, and uh, they're heavy. Um, the AR-88 weighs up to 40 kilos, um, so you wouldn't run out of the door with one. And this PCR up here, which is what, it's uh, about 9 inches by, 18 inches by a foot, that's fairly heavy, and that was uh, described in some manuals as a portable radio set. Um, they were held in naffies for the troops to listen to the, um, the BBC and things like that. Um, we have a couple of other smaller sets here. We have uh, a little B2, which was the receiver part of a, a suitcase radio. Ah. Uh, promised ourselves we'd make the transmitter and put it together one day, but at the moment we've got too much on. Yes, and the, the label next to it mentions the special operations executive. That's that, right. Uh, I mean, this was the, the French resistance and all this kind of uh, getting information in and out of yeah, the people occupied places. The people that were dropped into France uh, may have had one of these in the suitcase. And, and it's certainly not small and easily hideable. I wouldn't have thought. When you got in a suitcase with a transmitter, it wasn't. It was uh, in a suitcase, so it was uh, portable as such. But they must have been quite heavy. The other thing we have is we have a, an old crystal set and various things so that when the um, children come in they can see what a crystal set is because <laughs> half of them, have never, well more than half, have never even heard of a crystal set. I should think very few. <laughs> and uh, we have Morse keys, we've got uh, bug keys from the Americans, we've got uh, what they call a bathtub key which is well known in the uh, RAF and most of their aircraft. And we do use them occasionally and when the children come in they can, uh, they can have a go and setting their names on the Morse keys. In which case, they get a certificate. I'm Bernie. My role is to assist Barry. <laughs> <laughs> He's got more knowledge on the valves than I have, but between us, uh, we work the circuitry out and uh, do our best to get the radios up and running. But... I tend to run the amateur side. The station here has a club call sign and we use that to contact people around the world and promote the museum while we're doing it. And it's also when visitors come in, they, uh, they get quite interested when they hear foreign voices coming through the radio. Usual question is, how far do you get? So to answer that, about 18 months ago, we put a world map up under the wall and started putting little stickers on it to show where we've contacted. The farthest north at the moment was an ice flow in the Arctic, <laughs> a scientific expedition, and the farthest south is the Falkland Islands. And looking at that map, I see dots pretty much everywhere in between as well. <laughs> yes, um, a couple of weeks ago, I managed to get a J Japanese station. Um, there's nothing on Australia at the moment, partly because of the time factor. The best contacts for there are early morning or very late at night. And we're That's not, not here when then. the museum's open. No. But uh, we have we have had some contacts. If we went, we have to keep a logbook of every contact we made. And if we go back through the logbook, I went right back to the start. There are a couple of Australians yeah. on good days. Before the dots came out. Before the dots came out. <laughs> We've got a VHF set, a UHF set, a four-metre set, and an HF set. We've also got the capability of using the computer. It's 
what you would call an extension of packet radio. And if you know your history on amateur radio, it was amateur radio that actually brought about texting, faxing by radio. And first people to do it were amateurs. It's a cheating way of doing Morse code. <laughs> <laughs> Which, yeah, for those of us who've never been able to learn Morse, uh, do appreciate. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's, it's very interesting, Morse code. Um, to get my full licence, I had to do 12 words a minute and take an exam. It was done at the GPO station on the Isle of Wight, which is where I did my one. But, has has um, it been a while? <laughs> um, yes, you could say that. Um, and I'll be perfectly honest, I haven't, I haven't actually used my Morse code on air. I can still send, but on the receive side, because I haven't used it for so much, I stop and think and by then you've missed half the message <laughs> but my colleague Barry <laughs> um, he, he's puts, he puts us to shame uh, <laughs> and he does keep on at me to uh, get my speed back up but uh, we will one of these days so I mean, with the connection with the computer and the internet and uh, various other bits you know video calls and Skype and things these days when people come in here are they Still, do they still think that it's, it's magic that you can sit here and talk to people on the other side of the world? The, the problem you've got today with a um, mobile phone, you can talk to the world. Yeah. We can do it on the radio. Once we've bought the equipment, it is now licence-free or a free licence. Um, you still have to pass your exam and just re-register every five years to prove you're alive, but you don't have to pay for your licence. So apart from a bit of electricity to run it, it doesn't cost us anything to talk to the world. And as for computerising, the latest developments in amateur radio, they actually link through the internet. One of our sets that we've actually got on at the moment is listening to a repeater station on the Isle of Wight. And that has also got a link into the, the internet. And quite often you hear American, Australian, particularly there's a guy up in Scotland... <laughs> uses the internet to access the repeater. Right. And it's got to the stage now with the correct app on your phone and you have to be licensed. I could actually use my mobile smartphone and talk to the world through amateur radio. So th this is how the technology really has yep. moved on. I mean, in my head, I've still got a picture of Tony Hancock sitting at his... Uh, <laughs> great big bank of <laughs> boxes knowing whether it's raining or not in Hong Kong or wherever it was but what what do you talk to these people about are there any particular subjects not really um you just do you know if it's raining in Hong Kong <laughs> <laughs> you do get weather reports um very often they exchange what equipment they're using and once you tell them where you're transmitting from the museum, they want a bit of knowledge about the museum, so you have a chat about the museum. There are occasions that um, you might talk to somebody you've spoken to before, so it goes into a bit of detail. But um, yeah, do, do, you, do you speak to a lot of people more than once, or is it does it tend to be a one-off? From here, a lot of it is one-off, because generally if you hear them on the radio and you've spoken to them, we tend to look for another contact. <laughs> you want um, another dot on your map, that's the trouble. <laughs> yeah, well, when you've got five radios on yeah. the go, yeah. you're listening whatever comes up on it, and if it's somebody, it could be a special event station, then we will try and work it, even if we've worked them before. The old Chalk Pits uh, Museum, the Amberley Museum, oh, yeah, yeah. 
they have a radio station down there with a unique call sign and we know the chaps down there so whenever they're on if they don't get it on somebody answer them we'll have a chat to them hms belfast anchored up in the thames that's got an amateur radio station uh, gb2rn we often hear them on two meters and we'll go back and have a quick chat the other thing you've got is a, a lot of the amateur satellites particularly over at guildford vast majority of the people that work on those are radio amateurs and a lot of development work has been done through the amateur radio which presumably dates back to hearing sputnik and things going across in the 50s yes and of course what what made a big difference was uh, tim peak all right and the, the international space station yeah um he was in a radio ham and he did make a lot of contacts with schools and that um which publicised the amateur radio quite considerably, created a lot of interest and has brought quite a few youngsters into the uh, amateur world. Can you understand all that? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Wings Museum podcast. To find out more or to get in touch visit wingsmuseum.co.uk.